Awesome to be back with you all today. Uh, last week, my wife and I got a chance to take a vacation by ourselves, the first time in like two years. So uh, it was a nice relax, and we went up uh, north to the UP, visited that land of mystery, and uh, drove by the mystery spot. Didn't go there, but uh, if you've been up there, you probably know what I'm talking about. I had to look it up online to figure it out, because I was kind of weirded out by this mystery spot out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and uh, so, but it, we had a great time, beautiful country out there, it was nice and relaxing. And uh, I just want to say, I posted online this week, but I just want to say thank you to all of our team that, uh, that just made the show run uh, last week, uh, Luke, Amy, and Emma uh, taking uh, control of the, uh, the service, and all of our volunteers just did a fantastic job, and uh, it, it makes me hopeful. I've, I've been leading worship now for a very long time, and I'm at the place now where I'd really just like to focus on you know, preaching and, and being pastor, and uh, and with uh, Emma's performance, I got to hear it back over the recording. I figured that you know it's not too long that we might be able to have someone you know risen up to take over. So, uh, those of you that have children, I'm going to now guilt you. Please send your kids to music lessons. We need drummers, we need guitar players, we need keyboard players, we need singers. Start doing that now, and I promise I will put a good word in for you for the big man. And uh, see that you get an extra uh, jewel in your crown for doing that. So that, you know, within the next year or so, we could have an even larger praise team. And uh, I wouldn't have to do it any longer. So that's uh, my selfish ask for this morning. But, uh, but I'm just excited and, and thankful uh, that we have uh, people here that are gifted and, and uh, blessed by God to uh, carry the ministry forward. Um, and uh, so we're back in Matthew. We're, gonna, we're getting closer and closer to finishing our series where Matthew, and uh, we are going to be in chapter 27 today. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. The uh, verses will also be on the screen for you. Um, and um, we're just going to jump right in. We're, we're now at the climax, really, of the story. This is the, the moment, the point that uh, the Gospels have been preparing us for uh, since we started in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26, we're going to read... This short story, it says, Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus replies, You have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. 
Then Jesus, or just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor again asked, which of these two do you want me to release you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? And the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've read your scriptures. We've declared your word, God. We've gathered in this place to hear from you. And so, Lord, now we just invite you in the name of Jesus to come work and move in our lives. God, speak to us from your word as we see not only what Jesus went through, but how we can apply this to our lives, how we can increase in hope and faith and honor you more because of what you've done for us. God, how you've come to not just pave the way for salvation, God, but you've come to give it to each and every one of us as a personal gift as we respond to you in faith. And we thank you for that gift and for all that you've done for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So to catch you up in the story, if you've kind of been gone for the last couple of weeks or maybe you're just jumping in today, Jesus has now come to the final hours of his life. He's been betrayed by a close friend, and he was apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane. A couple weeks ago, when we were in Matthew, we talked about the Garden of Gethsemane, and that name or term Gethsemane literally means an oil press. And so even though Jesus was in an actual garden, uh, praying and, and just getting ready for what he was about to go through, that name oil press reveals to us, it's a symbol, and it symbolizes that Jesus was now beginning the trial of suffering that he was about to endure. And he was about to endure the suffering for the sins of the whole world. Uh, as he's in the garden, the temple guards come and arrest the Lord. His disciples, who were talking big stuff just shortly before, abandon him. Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish high council, the law-making body in the Jewish nation, in that, uh, the is nation of Israel during that time. It's their high council, and Jesus is questioned in the dead of night at an illegal trial. And many false witnesses are coming just to try to entrap Jesus and find some way to make him guilty. They weren't getting anywhere, and finally the high priest asked Jesus point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the living God? And Jesus responds, confirming that truth, that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Amen to that. And the Jews didn't believe him, nor did they want to believe him, and so they attributed his claim to a claim of blasphemy. This was a very dangerous or very serious charge in the Jewish nation. And now that they had this a uh, charge of blasphemy, they had ammunition to charge Jesus with the death penalty. Now, in that time during the Roman occupation, the Jews were not allowed to carry out a death sentence. The Romans wouldn't let them do it. 
But they had this charge that they could now bring before the Roman uh, governor. And so the priests take Jesus before the officer ruling the land, the man named Pilate. And Pilate conducts his own investigation. He questions and interrogates Jesus and finds no fault in him. Agrees with his wife that this is an innocent man. But he sees that by the way the crowd was acting, unless something was done about him, that there could be a great riot. So this is a very uh, tense and, and delicate predicament. And so Pilate decides to make a move to appease the crowd, which indicated that at the heart, Pilate agreed that the death of one innocent man was not as horrible as it was what the rioters would do. He let the man, Jesus, die in order to keep the peace. Pilate orders Jesus to be killed. And so in this moment, as Pilate washes his hands of the responsibility of what is to be done with Jesus, our Lord is taken and beaten to an inch of his life. Uh, I often think about the movie The Passion of the Christ whenever I, I read this passage of the story. It's the images that flood my mind, but we know biblically the passion barely touches or scratches the surface of what happened to Jesus. Scripture declares, records that he was beaten so badly you couldn't even recognize him as a human being, as a man. That's how awful and horrible he was beaten. And uh, in, in his history and archaeology, it is uh, recorded that many would not even survive the beating, being scourged with the cat and nine tails or the lead-tipped whip. This whip had many strands and it had ball bearings attached to it, sometimes even hooks or uh, pieces of bone, so that as the whip hit the flesh, it would tenderize the body, and when it got soft enough, the bone would tear the, the skin and shred the body so that they would bleed profusely. Many didn't even survive. Yet our Lord carried on. He got all the way to the end. He was beaten and made to carry his cross through the streets until he ended on the mountain called Golgotha, or the place of the skull. And he paid for the sins of the world in opening the door of salvation for us all. This is why he came. It's why God sent him. Now, even to this day, there's some great speculation on whether Jesus actually ever existed, whether he was the Messiah, the son of the God, or just some false prophet or wackadoo that gained some followers back in the day. Many in the Jewish community reject Jesus as the Messiah, and many non-believers reject Jesus was the Messiah. But one of the incredible things about the Bible that we can do now is we're in this place in history is that we can go back and we can read all the prophetic sayings and writings of the, the prophets of the Old, uh, Old Testament prior to the coming of Jesus. And we can see that how not only does Jesus fulfill them, but he's the only one that could fulfill those writings. Writings that, that from hundreds to even a thousand years ago tell specifically about the things Jesus would say and do and accomplish. In Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and 26, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Rome, he says this. He says, Now all glory to God, who is able to make you strong, just as my good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles. Those are all non-Jewish people. A plan kept secret from the beginning of time, but now as the prophets foretold and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere so that they too might believe and obey him. 
What Paul is telling the church of Rome here is that God revealed to the nation of Israel who the Messiah would be through the prophets. He told them. He told them how long it would be before he would come. He told them where he would be born. They told him what he would look like. They told him what he would do, who would be his mother, how he would be born, the circumstances. He gave them all the information they needed to know about when he would arrive. They, they told him about his ministry. They told him about his death. They told him about his resurrection. God told Israel everything they needed to know about Jesus before he ever came to prepare them for his coming and the coming kingdom. And before the Psalms that speak of the Messiah's coming were written, before the prophets of old ever gave their revelations of the coming Savior, God began to unfold his plan to redeem the world when he appeared to Moses. And through Moses delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery and the promised land. This was a symbol of how the Messiah would come, would free us from being slave to sin or in bondage to sin. And as we followed God, we too would be blessed to dwell with him forever and forever and forever. This is a picture. But Israel should have known who Jesus was when they saw all the signs of his birth, when Jesus came and the star was in the sky and everything surrounding that. But the reality of how much Jesus actually fulfilled in Scripture wasn't fully understood until he rose from the grave. Until we could see, without a doubt, that Jesus was who he said he was. And this is why the Jews in that time missed him, other than his disciples. They missed who he was because, and how many of them now reject him. They were blind and didn't realize how much Jesus fulfilled everything the prophets of old and the Old Testament commands and prophecies spoke about the Lord. And this is why Paul says that the mystery has been revealed to us now as Gentiles. We're able to look back and see how all of these things come together and see what Israel missed. But now that Jesus has risen from the dead, how we can see he's fulfilled the scriptures, specifically of these prophecies, Jesus was exactly who he said he was. The shadow that was cast over the scriptures prior to his coming that hid the truth from the people of the world, the nation of Israel, has been removed now through the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the writing of the New Testament. And this truth now is revealed to us and to all who believe, Jew and Gentile alike. But while Moses was presiding over the nation of Israel after they had come out of the Red Sea and uh, into their journey towards the Promised Land, shortly after God brought them out of Egypt, God gave Israel a set of laws and decrees and commands and customs in order to observe and obey. And these ceremonies were given and intended to be carried out year after year at particular times during the year and during particular festivals. And even now, I read an article this week that there are devout Jewish leaders in the nation of Israel today that are working towards going back to a similar time as the Old Testament. They've reconvened the Sanhedrin, the high council, the same lawmaking body that condemned Jesus to death. They've anointed a new high priest who will be able to carry out the sacrifices and uh, these festivals for the people of Israel as soon as the law-making body in Israel permits them to do so and gives them permission to begin rebuilding the temple. They're, they're, they're doing this right now, working back towards uh, fulfilling these commands and covenantal promises uh, in their own way. Uh, but now these ceremonies and sacrifices that God had given them 
were given to them as a reminder to Israel to remember all that God had done for them. But not just all that God had done delivering them from Israel, but of the future promise that the Messiah would come to set all things right. And so now we understand through the coming of Jesus that everything he did and everything he accomplished, that this was accomplished. These commands and decrees from the Lord weren't just religious rules for the nation of Israel. They weren't given to them just to appease God's wrath. The commands and the traditions and customs that God gave Israel told a bigger story. A bigger story than the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. They spoke of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, how God would free the world from being a slave to sin and Satan and reestablish what was lost at the fall. What we lost when man introduced sin into the world. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says that the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of good things to come, not the good things themselves. So God didn't give them the law for the law's sake. Says the sacrifice under that system was repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship because that was not their intention. Paul, writing to the church of Colossians in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, says, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And who is that reality? Christ himself. Jesus is the reality. He's the story behind the story. We understand now by looking back to what God had done that all the rules, the laws, the sacrifices, the customs, the festivals pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the story behind the story. And his sacrifice was one sacrifice that would be sufficient to cover all sin for all time and restore a man's standing with God. See, the Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't able to provide perfect cleansing of sin because it wasn't intended to cleanse the people. It wasn't cleansing. It was proclaiming. And what it was proclaiming was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about what Jesus was going to do, how he was going to do it, and, how, and what he would accomplish when he did it. And one of these books that goes into specific detail about these rules, these customs, these traditions is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a wild read. If you've ever uh, read through the book of Leviticus, you'll be reading something about, yes, cleanse this utensil, wash this, wash that, and then it'll say something, you're like, mm, I don't know if I feel right reading that in this point in time. You know, I don't know if my parents would approve of me reading that part of Leviticus. You know, so it's, it's a crazy book. Uh, but uh, it's an Old Testament book found in the first five books of the Old Testament. Those first five books were called the Torah, or are called the Torah to the nation of Israel. We call them the law, because that's where many of the laws and the decrees are found. In Leviticus, it's filled with all sorts of commands about hygiene, dietary laws, moral laws, as well as mandatory customs and ceremonies. And one of those customs, the ceremonies in particular, is this, the ceremony of the scapegoat. And we're going to read what the scapegoat ceremony was. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 7 through 10. This is that ceremony. It says, Then he must take, this is the high priest, two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. 
Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat chosen by the Lord to be sent away, will be kept alive, standing before the Lord. When it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. Then Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. There he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it just as he did with the bull's blood. Through this process, he will purify the most holy place and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the defiling sin and rebellion of the Israelites. So this is where we get the term scapegoat. You've heard that term before, right? A lot of times it's a legal term when, when people in business are trying to make someone else fall for their high uh, white-collar crimes. We get this. Now, in my house, you know, I have four children, and it, it's not uncommon that any given day, as my wife and I are just having a conversation, we will hear a loud boom or bang. And all of a sudden, an outpour, an eruption of crying and, and, and just... Uh, uncontrollable tears begins to fill the house, and you can hear the pounding of feet, boom, 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 coming to find mom and dad, right? And uh, our, our kids will come find us, whichever they find first, and they'll begin to go through this elaborate story about what one of their siblings has just done to them, how they hurt them. And, and they will not only talk about what they did, but they will elaborate on the story and how they came upon this plight and why, beyond any reasonable doubt, the perpetrator should just be disciplined for their actions. What are you going to do about it? They did this. They hit me. They blah, 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 blah. You know, King Solomon, he was the wisest king who's ever lived. He wrote the book of wisdom, Proverbs. In Proverbs, Solomon says, a person's uh, a testimony seems right in court until it's cross-examined. In other words, there's always two sides to the story, right? And so, you know, we hear this story and we feel for them, be like, oh, man, you're right, that was wrong, I can't believe they did that. But then we start to cross-examine a little bit and we'll come to find out that the person who's crying and tattling was the one that started the problem to begin with. So here we have this, this uh, incident that occurred. They ended up getting hurt, but they're tattling, trying to get someone else in trouble to keep from taking responsibility for their actions and keep from having a discipline session with daddy because they all fear that. So uh, the, this is just what happens. Try, they try to turn their sibling into the scapegoat, the one that wasn't responsible to making them responsible. And this was the ceremony of the scapegoat in the nation of Israel. They would take two pure and spotless animals, a lamb or a goat, and that they would roll dice to see which one would be sacrificed. And what they would do is they would symbolically lay the sins of the people on one, and then they would kill the other. In other words, you are guilty, but you have to die. That's kind of unfair for the one that had to die, in my mind. I'm just like, I don't want to be a part of that ceremony as a goat, right? But one is guilty, but the other one is going to pay for that guilt with its life. They would kill the second one, but they would let the first one go free. And they just wouldn't let it go free, but they would actually run it out of town. Run it into the wilderness to get it out. Because that symbolized the sins of the people being carried away, removing their guilt before the Lord. One goat to pay the penalty for sin and curtail God's wrath. One goat to remove the sins of the people from before the presence of God. 
Now, the people believed that God is actually the one that chose which one had to die. So they would cast lots. This is equal to rolling dice or drawing straws, flipping a coin, that type of thing. But they believed that whatever the, the uh, lot landed on, that that's who God would choose to be the sacrificed animal. And so basically God would be choosing both. If he chose the one on the right to be sacrificed, he would then be also choosing the one on the left to be set free. Now in our text here in Matthew 27, this is pretty much the same situation as the scapegoat ceremony. We have two potential sacrifices before us and before God. We have Jesus and we have Barabbas. And we would naturally think if we're looking at the scapegoat ceremony and these two goats as being symbolic to represent something, we would naturally think Barabbas is one goat and Jesus is the other. And so as we're looking at that, we would know because we know the story, we would obviously think, well, Jesus is the sacrifice, right? Of course, because he paid for our sins. He paid for our sins through the shedding of his blood. He died on the cross for us. Now, in Leviticus, it says this, the blood in the scapegoat ceremony was to be sprinkled onto the mercy seat behind the veil in their tabernacle to purify the place where God's presence rested. In the Old Testament, God would literally descend from heaven. His presence would fill that inner chamber in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, and that's where God's people would come to bring their sacrifices to receive forgiveness of their sins. The tabernacle was the tent where they would offer these sacrifices prior to the building of the temple in the Old Testament. In the inner chamber behind that veil, again, it's called the Holy of Holies. It was the most holy place. People feared that room. They feared that place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was stored because the Ark of the Covenant on the top of that is where the mercy seat was. And so that's where they would sprinkle the blood. Now, the Holy of Holies was so holy that if you entered into that room unworthy, you would die. You would die. If you entered into that room guilty of your sins, they were so fearful of this place, priests would actually have uh, you know, jingle bells and different types of ornaments on their clothes that would make sound, and they would listen for the sound as the priest was in there before God. And when they stopped hearing things, they would pull this rope that was attached to his leg and pull out his dead body. This is how holy this place was and how fearful they were going before the Lord. But the scapegoat, its blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to bring that forgiveness to the people. And God had to be separated from the people in the Old Testament. He had to be because his presence was so holy, so glorious, that if the people stood before his glory, they would perish. And so God commanded Israel, or really Moses, to ensure that a veil or a curtain was placed between the Holy of Holies and the people to shield us, to protect us. And the scriptures record when Jesus died, there was a great earthquake. It rippled through the land and it cracked the foundation of the temple. Matthew 27, 50 and 51 says, Jesus shouted out again. He released his spirit. And at the moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The moment Jesus died, the veil that was separating God from the people was torn in half and was removed out of the way. This is the very same veil that protected the people from God's presence in the tabernacle and that protected God's people from his presence in the temple. And when the temple veil tore in two, it symbolized that there was now nothing that separated God from men. 
And there would be nothing to separate God from him now or forever because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of the sacrifice was poured onto the mercy seat to purify the throne of God in his presence. But the blood of Jesus was poured out into the world to purify the people of the world forever. And so now anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we have nothing left to fear when we want to approach God. Jesus Christ's sacrifice has made God near to us without any reason to fear. Scripture says we can come boldly to the throne of grace where we will find mercy and help in the time of need. God, through Christ, is now near to us. Jesus, as the sacrificial animal, accomplished great things on the cross. Because of the cross and his blood that was spilled out, our sin debt has been paid for. God's wrath towards us has been fully satisfied once and for all. We fear judgment no more. Paul said there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 2.14 says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Jesus was that atoning sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice in this uh, ceremony of the scapegoat. And he overcame everything that was between us and God. The curse of death I was born into, the curse I am responsible for, the curse that was being used against me is the curse that was broken when his blood was poured out for us. The amazing thing is God defeated death with death's greatest weapon. Jesus conquered death with death itself. And so now you who are captive are set free. You who are rejected are now accepted. You who were guilty have been judged not guilty in the court of heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. When Satan stands before God and accuses you as the accuser of the brethren, he raises your sins before the Father. Jesus, who is standing next to him, calls out, not guilty. This one's mine. Their sins are covered by my blood. I paid for that one. Jesus' sacrifice was final. One sacrifice, powerful enough to pay for all sin for all time. So if these two men standing before the crowd, Jesus undoubtedly is the animal sacrifice in the scapegoat ceremony. But see, now Barabbas, he was a rebel. Maybe even kind of gangster. He'd be the guy sagging his robe in, uh, you know, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. The lowriders, right? He was a bad guy. He caused constant problems for Rome, which made he caused constant problems for Israel. He was not a person people honored or respected. Scripture says he was notorious. People didn't like him. He was a criminal. He had been in prison for his crimes, and most likely, just like Jesus, was facing crucifixion. And Pilate understands Jesus is an innocent man. He knows it through the prophetic warning of his wife and just from his own investigation. And so Pilate, he doesn't want anything to do with condemning Jesus. And so he tries to steer the people away from being angry with the Lord. He brings out a man that should be crucified to stand against to a man that is perfectly innocent. This is his way of trying to force the crowd into making the right decision, to kind of guilt them. Yeah, we should probably off this guy instead of this guy. But they didn't go for it. 
Just like the ceremony of the scapegoat, the proverbial lot was cast and a choice was made. One had to die and the other to be set free. And Barabbas is set free and Jesus is crucified. However, there's something different in the narrative of that scapegoat ceremony here involving Jesus and Barabbas. See, in Leviticus, the scapegoat animals both had to be spotless animals. They had to be pure. They had to be without blemish, which means no def defect in them. They couldn't be sick or anything wrong with them. They had to be considered pure and holy before the Lord because either of them, once the lot was cast, could become the, the uh, animal chosen to be the sacrifice. So they both had to be pure. They both had to be spotless. And here in the story of Barabbas and Jesus, Barabbas wasn't spotless. He wasn't pure. He was a sinner just like you and I. He was a notorious sinner. He was not capable of bearing the sins of the world. So Barabbas in the story cannot represent the scapegoat. So what does Barabbas represent? Well, I believe Barabbas represents us. I am Barabbas. And you are Barabbas. See, mankind was made in the image of God. We are his sons and his daughters. But when sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, we lost something. We lost our relationship with God. We lost our place in the family of God. Our relationship was broken and mankind was cast out from his presence. And mankind has been repeating that same old story. As the sin nature is passed down from parent to child, generation after generation, day after day, year after year. You see, I am the child of God who walked his own way in my own rebellion to do as my wicked heart desires. And you are the child of God who has walked away in rebellion to do as your wicked heart desires. Isaiah 53, 6, the prophet says, All of us are like sheep who have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Where he says, The Lord laid on him the sins. That's scapegoat language. That's goat number two. You see, the, the, when we are Barabbas, we are the guilty ones. We are the condemned. We are the rejected, the unworthy, the wretch. We're the one following our own path and not his ways. We are born into a sin prison, waiting to meet our fate. Barabbas had no power to change his predicament. He was a dead man walking, locked in a prison of his own making, just the same as you and me. We can't earn our forgiveness. Our righteousness, the best that we could do, the Greatest deeds we can accomplish compared to the glory and holiness of God are like filthy rags, Scripture tells us. We have no power to free ourselves of sin's hold upon us. We're born slaves to sin, which is why the Father chose Jesus for this purpose. Jesus did what only he could do. He was the only one worthy to give his life and spill his blood to pay for our sins, and he is the only one worthy to take the sins of the people away and bear that weight as the scapegoat, who would flee the land to dwell in the presence of God as a reminder of forgiveness. John 1.29, as John the Baptist is baptizing in the River Jordan, he sees Jesus coming. This is what he says. He says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is both the sacrifice and the scapegoat. 
You see, in the Old Testament, one goat could not pay for the sins with his life and also be alive to carry away the sins of the world. They had to have two goats for that ceremony, one to live, one to die. It's only Jesus who's powerful enough to carry both burdens. An interesting thing about the story about Jesus and Barabbas is that the name Barabbas actually means son of the father. Jesus, who is the pure and sinless, only begotten Son of God, was rejected while the wicked Son of the Father was accepted. See, when the people call out to save Barabbas, God in that moment makes an exchange. He makes an exchange of his righteousness for our wickedness. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. By choosing Barabbas to be set free, God is telling each and every one of us, that now through the resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ, our sonship has been restored. The rejected son is now the accepted son. What we lost in the Garden of Eden has now been regained through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's through our faith in Jesus, we who were rejected by God have now been adopted back into his family. John 1.12, the King James Version said, As many as received him, to them Gave you the power to become the sons of God. If you have faith in Jesus Christ today, his power is made evident in you as you have gone from rejected to adopted son of the most high God. We who are fallen sons and daughters of the Father through Jesus have become risen children of the King. Leviticus 16.10 says, The other goat, the scapegoat chosen by Lot to be sent away, will be kept alive, standing before the Lord when it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness. The people will be purified and made right with the Lord. You see, it wasn't until the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus was brought to life that he was able to carry away the sins of the world. When he left the world and he ascended into heaven, he took that burden and weight of our sin upon his shoulders with him into heaven, and now he is forever before the Lord as a reminder of what God has done and provided through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the Father looks at Jesus and he sees the scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side, he's reminded that our sins are washed away. They are forgiven. Psalm 103, verse 12 says he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. As far as heaven is separated from earth, our sins are no more. They're gone. If you are in Christ, you are no longer guilty. Your sins are no more. No matter who we are, where we've been, no matter what we've done, there is nothing greater or more powerful than his love for us. There's nothing. We are Barabbas, and we are truly loved by Almighty God. The gates of your prison have been opened. God has chosen you. Think about that. God has chosen you to be set free. But so often we remain discouraged in life. We live in discouragement. We feel trapped and hopeless in the prisons of our situations and our mistakes and our experiences. But Jesus has won your freedom. Freedom is yours. You just have to leave your prison and walk free in his grace, love, and forgiveness. You've already been set free from past hurts and mistakes. Just like Israel had to keep following the Lord towards the promised land, you just have to keep following Jesus into your freedom. 
It's already won. It's already provided. You see, death may take this body, but it cannot take my soul. And one day when Jesus returns, my body will be snatched back from death, changed into a body that will never die as I live with the Savior forevermore. This is the hope that we have, the day that we long for, that we pray for, the day when we see Jesus face to face. But until that day, when our battles will be over and our struggles will be no more, we keep walking. We keep following. And Jesus is leading us to our freedom. And maybe you're here today and you've just been struggling. Things of the past, mistakes you've made, situations you've been through, burdens maybe you're presently carrying. You're going through something right now. Maybe you feel like because of what you've done, if there is a God, he wouldn't love a person like you. I'm here to tell you today that if he chose Barabbas, he's already chosen you. He's already chosen you. And he's already opened the lock to the prison that has had you trapped. His blood paid the price for you and his resurrection made the way for you. And all you have to do is believe him enough to follow him into your freedom. And the journey to freedom and a restored relationship with your heavenly Father begins with believing Jesus is Lord and that his death and resurrection was enough. You can begin that journey of freedom today. Some of you here today, you've already begun that journey, but you stopped following. You got into the doorway, but the outside kind of looks scary, so you stopped moving forward. You see, the struggles in our lives, the things we encounter seem so real and so strong. And it's really hard sometimes to keep going on, to keep taking step after step. You're in the doorway. But the reality is, is that the freedom that you long for, that you hope for, that you pray for, is just one step away. The door is open. Today, you need to call out to Jesus where you are. Draw close to the Lord, and you will find the help that you need, and lean on him to take the step. Lean on him to keep going. His shoulders can bear it, because he's bearing the sins of the whole world, and follow him out of the darkness that has had you trapped and into the light where you will experience true freedom. I am Barabbas, but I'm free. Let's bow our heads. Maybe you're here in this place today and you truly need deliverance. You've just been struggling. Maybe it's a habit that you can't break. It's a thought process that has just had you discouraged. And you just feel trapped in this negativity. Maybe you've made a mistake and now you feel like you're no good or you were hurt or betrayed and you feel like your joy will never return right now in this place. Call out to the Lord. Take your burdens before the Lord. Maybe you're dealing with an illness. Call out to God. Put your faith that he will lead you to your freedom. Today, in just a moment, as we pray, I'm going to invite you to come down to the front of the stage or just kneel where you are in your seat and just bring your burdens before the Lord. Reaffirm your faith in his word and his love and his power to deliver you from your situation and call out to him. Scripture says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There is power in the name of Jesus. 
And sometimes it just takes believing in his name enough to call out and then follow him where he leads in your life. Maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You're still trapped in your sin prison. You're still waiting on the door to be unlocked because you've never taken that leap of faith. Right now in this place, you can begin that walk towards freedom by calling out to Jesus and receiving him as your Lord and Savior. You can pray this simple prayer with me just right there where you are. You can say, Father in heaven, I know I'm a sinner, but Jesus died for me. I claim him as my Lord and Savior. I put my faith in his death and resurrection. Take me, Lord. I'm yours in Jesus' name. And a simple prayer of faith can unlock the door and restore your relationship with God. As we enter a time of prayer right now, I'm just going to invite you to be still before the Lord and pray. And as the band sings and plays, let's have a time where we begin to walk in our freedom as we trust in and follow the Lord.